Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another steamy, summery week from Wisconsin. Hey, we got our full panel here. And that means Claire Zauke, the birthday girl, is with us. It's Claire Zauke's <laughs> birthday and we're really happy that she does not have the day off. Happy birthday! She joined us. Claire, how are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing very well on this birthday morning. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you chose to join us. And also Robert Craig is with us. Robert, how are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Uh, that, and the, the country's hanging, hanging in there too, but just barely. That is, that is a fair response. It is strange times. Um, and Robert, you actually sort of highlight what we're going to start the show with. And we are going to talk about what's been going on in Congress. Folks, we're also going to continue to talk about what's happening with the COVID surge. Lots of news. We hopefully will also talk about a number of other topics. But later on in the show, we are going to be joined by another United States Senate candidate in the Democratic primary. That is Jillian Bettino. We will talk later. But hey, let us, we have, it's big news this week. I don't know how else to say it. Um, we have told you, we believe both the combined bipartisan infrastructure bill and the budget reconciliation bill, which we've talked about is a $3.5 trillion bill that we say really starts to address human infrastructure. A big news this week, there was movement on this, particularly in the House, the Democratic House, where a lot of the action is. Robert, Give us a quick update. It, where are we? Was this really good? Was this good news or or something somewhere else? Uh, this is good news. It's sort of like getting a first down, but you're still in. Uh, you're still not past midfield to give you the Green Bay Packers analogy, but you still get the first down, so that's good. The drive is alive. Two minute. Well, it's not a two minute drill, but it's certainly a four minute drill, and so. We've had this, we have a situation where the Democrats have very narrow majorities, much narrower than any majority that's ever done large-scale structural reform. And you have a new look Democratic Party that has much stronger progressive representation in both the Senate and the House and organized blocks that are hanging together. So more progressives and more unified progressives. And President Biden, it's very strange, unlike last three presidents and the leadership of the House and Senate are working with the progressives and the people who are throwing wrenches in it are the moderates, the people who have been in the saddle of democratic politics and democratic administrations and congresses for 40 years. And so we had to get through because we had to have the bipartisan piece because moderate senators insisted on doing something much smaller that some Republicans would do. But then that isn't the Biden's entire agenda, which is sweeping. It's at a New Deal scale, actually, if it's all passed. And, and, and we've talked about a lot of the elements we'll continue to in Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, that you, there, It's a two-track strategy. They have to move together. It happened in the Senate before the recess, and it was a close call, but all 50 senators voted for both on the Democratic side, and, and a number of Republicans voted for the bipartisan part of it. And in the House, we've had this drama where nine 
uh, Congress people, moderate, uh, actually talk show host Jeff Santos calls them the corporate nine. I think that's a good uh, tagline for them, have been standing up and saying they will not vote for the broader package, the, uh, the, 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 the whole $3.5 trillion budget package, unless the bipartisan one is already passed and signed by the White House which violates the whole agreement to do this together and to keep both sides together. And progressives refuse to budge because they'll lose all their leverage and we won't do what we need to do if you give moderates that, the front end. And ultimately, they backed down, whether it was a deal or not. A lot of the press is calling it a deal because they supposedly got out of it a deadline of September 27th for a vote on the bipartisan plan. Nancy Pelosi straight out says, it's not a deal at all. What deal? I just told them what the schedule is. So whatever it is, Nancy Pelosi, who is one of the most effective House speakers in American history and the first woman House speaker as well, um, has kept the drive going. But now there's a whole process on a short timeline for actually doing the legislation around the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better agenda that's in the budget resolution. Claire, uh, your thoughts on uh, this historic week? Yeah, so uh, I want to lift up sort of one of the last things that Robert said, right, which is that I think it it shows, you know, lover or hater, the strength of Speaker Pelosi to be able to keep this sort of corporate, uh, moderate group of congressmen in line enough to say like, okay, you want to pass this infrastructure bill? Like, that's fine. We want to pass it too, but we're also going to do this bigger budget resolution. And I think what that's going to lead to is the the um, the bigger issue about uh, actually writing the bills, right? So what happened this past week, as Robert said, is that they passed sort of this like high level framework for it. And now most of the members of Congress are going back to their districts to resume um, sort of like the recess while behind the scenes, key members of Congress and their staff and committee staffs are writing the actual texts of the bill and building the actual policies. And the deadline for having that text done is around September 15th, which feels like not that far away, or, or well, it feels like kind of far away. It feels like, oh, that's September, that's next month, that's fall, but that's something like two, two and a half weeks away from now. And they have to generate thousands of pages of legislative policy. They have to vet the policy, ensure it passes muster for the filibuster-proof reconciliation process, and then, of course, get it scored, uh, meaning get the, the financial cost of it analyzed, and then try to pass it. Like It is a lot that's going to have to happen over the course of the next two to four weeks. And I think... The key things to keep in mind are two things, which is one, we we want to stay strong in showing support for having the overall size and scale of this package be as close as possible to the $3.5 trillion that is being proposed by the president and the Democrats, right? Like that is super important. And there are a couple of folks, you've heard their names in the Senate, Cinema and Mansion, senators from uh, well, not Wisconsin, um, who have said that they would not vote for a final package of that size. And that's a problem, right? Um, because what are, what are we going to cut, right? Are we going to cut the, the paid leave? Are we going to cut the universal child care? Are we going to cut health care? Are we going to cut prescription drug costs, right? Like everything in this package is critical to the American public. So we got to stay true to that size and put pressure on the Senate Democrats to keep it at that size. The other thing that is going to be important to keep an eye on is what we call the pay-fors, which is 
how are we going to pay for what is in this package? And there are two things that are on the table right now, and they're both super important. I feel super passionately about both of them. And they are one savings from prescription drug reform, um, which is mainly going to be used to pay for the healthcare investments in the package. And that'll generate anywhere from 450 billion to 600 billion dollars um, and that's largely through Medicare not having to pay as much for prescription drugs um, as they do right now and then reinvesting that money and then secondly new revenue generated by making the tax code more fair um, and leveraging taxes on corporations and on um, the wealthiest people in this country so that they pay their fair share and that revenue is helped to subsidize making the rest of our society society um, healthier and stronger. One of the things I heard uh, listening to both of you and just reading, we heard a timeline, Robert, you mentioned that Pelosi said all she was doing was setting a timeline. If I remember correctly, it's September 25th. And then Claire, I heard you say there's a goal of September 15th to get these things drafted. Are we, comments from both of you, are we talking about it playing out essentially in between those two weeks, the 15th and the 25th? I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of activity before the end of September. I'll go to Robert for more thoughts. Look, this is going to be a land record, which means staff drafts legislation. Hopefully a lot of the drafting's actually been done already behind the scenes. And people sometimes think these senators and representatives are there with their pet quill pens writing legislation. No, they have very large, very professional staffs. And hopefully they're far along. The problem's going to be when they're disagreement about structure of things and the like, and that's gonna take time. But the deadline is helpful. And I think, I think this is a critical thing I'm gonna throw in. Um, this is critical to saving democracy and voting rights because Lyndon Johnson counseled a long time ago that you never put a big budget resolution or something you have to pass behind something that can be filibustered. So if you were going to change the filibuster, for example, and make it a talking filibuster, you want to do that after you pass the whole Build Back Better agenda. And if you do it earlier, there's more time to get done in time to prevent all the voter suppression on the country. So I think that's connected in a way most, I haven't heard any pundits connected. With that, folks, we are going to have to take our first break. I do want to remind our listeners, uh, we are continuing to do events in support of this agenda. We got a couple of events going on today, Thursday. Again, we record this on Thursday. Uh, in Appleton and La Crosse. We're going to have continue to do things to support this agenda. It's absolutely critical. We're talking about a historic amount of resources and investment and opportunity. With that, you're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. Folks, we have got to talk about COVID. Um, Wow, there was a period, a small period, where we were not talking a lot about COVID. That changed uh, over a month ago, and now it is a weekly topic. Uh, for obvious reasons, I don't need to tell our listeners, the surge is intense. The test positivity numbers this week are skyrocketing. We're now into, I think, over 2,000 a day. Hospitalization rates at over 900, almost 900 in hospitals. And of course, we've had very high profile um, folks, including uh, State Senator Andre Jock on a ventilator. Claire, we always turn to you for just the broader perspective on where we're at, 
uh, here and also within the context of some of the things I mentioned, but also the FDA this week, really big news, approved the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, is this changing? Where are we at, Claire? And oh, and I didn't mention all the stuff that continues to go on at school boards where uh, anti-masking crowds are acting as if this pandemic is over, Claire. Yeah, so to give folks an update on the numbers, like I usually do at the top of these conversations, uh, Wisconsin is back up to about 1,500 new confirmed cases a day, which uh, is really disappointing because we were we were down to uh, low double digits for a while there, and uh, we're now at about 51% of Wisconsinites who have completed the vaccine series and 54% who um, have had at least one dose. And that's of all Wisconsinites, not just eligible ones. So um, you're right, there's been a, um, a recent slight uptick in the number of people taking uh, up the vaccine, which is helpful. Um, of course, I shouldn't just say helpful, incredibly important, and it's good, and I hope that that trend speeds up and continues. Uh, the governor, obviously, the big news this week in the vaccine front is that he announced a $100 incentive for a short period of time for folks who get the vaccine. Um, I, I've been talking to some folks in the health advocate community. Um, I, I think it's pretty hard to... Um, the easiest way to access, I should say, that $100 incentive is to do it through an official uh, government vaccination place, um, like one of the official DHS or City of Milwaukee Public Health or City of Madison, whatever, public health uh, vaccine clinics. It's a little bit harder to do with some of the um, private vaccination clinics that are being run at a more grassroots level, which is um, disappointing. Uh, but it's important that that incentive ex exists. Um, I wish that it had... Um, happened a little bit earlier at the time when we saw more mayors and governors around the country uh, implementing their financial vaccine incentives, but uh, glad we're doing it now. Um, and I, I think it's, oh, the other big national news, of course, like you said, is the FDA giving the official Pfizer um, approval, uh, not just the emergency approval. And of course, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are very, very similar. So I would expect that before too long, we'll see the Moderna vaccine receive the same official, official stamp of approval. Um, and as we sort of expected, that launched a sort of a landslide of, um, you know, open the dams, as they say of organizations like uh, the military um, to smaller you know, businesses and employers and venues saying, okay, now we are also gonna have vaccine mandates for uh, attendees and employees of our organization, of our business, um, et cetera. So um, I, I think a lot of folks were kind of waiting on that, that piece to fall into place. And now that it has, we're gonna see um, a lot more official um, vaccine requirements. So we continue to have an out of control pandemic because we have a political movement and a political party that has made it a virtue to downplay COVID. And that's what everything else flows from that. If COVID's not a serious problem, then the public health requirements are simply motivated by the Democrats desire to control people. That only makes sense if there isn't a legitimate threat that is related to, uh, to the public health emergency. So that is the fruit of it, and that started with Donald Trump. But obviously, science denial started with corporate 
America, climate, smoking, lead, you name it, pollution in general, and this is transferred over. So this is a lot deeper than Donald Trump. But it is shocking, as Claire mentioned, what, and Matt mentioned, what's happening in these public meetings, the things average people are saying about masks and about vaccines. And then it's even more shocking that we have this rash of people taking a, a, a deworming uh, drug sold in, in, uh, in, in livestock and feedstock stores um, as a COVID solution, because this is what's coming through. And you have people who will not take scientifically verified vaccines and are afraid of them, but will go to the, vet, to, to the feed store and buy something designed for horses and cows and then get sick. Uh, as of last week, it was the leading cause of emergency room visits in Mississippi taking this. And in addition, they were the farmers couldn't get it because it was running off the shelves. I mean, this is an, this would be a dark comedy book or, or movie if you wouldn't believe it. You'd say, "Oh, that couldn't happen. This is crazy." Well, that's what is going on, and that is the opposition, and that is the stakes in holding power and winning the next election, protecting voting rights, etc. But we have a senator here coming back to Wisconsin. We're going to talk a little later to a Senate candidate. Ron Johnson, who is one of the main promoters of taking um, ivermectin, the cow and, uh, and, uh, and horse deworming drug, which has been put together at cow and horse-sized doses. Not a good thing for humans to be taking, not directed by any legitimate scientist. So we're beginning to see some firmness. Uh, Governor Evers, you know, better late than never has come out with the $100 gift card for two weeks if you get vaccinated. Um, I'd like to see more boldness in that quarter. Um, I'd like to see a vaccine mandate for state employees and for um, and to use the Department of Health Services Authority for school employees because our kids and our school employees are all at risk because we are not having serious safety. We're not having mask mandates, social distancing, critically important, uh, appropriate ventilation for an airborne disease, including not only the ventilation system of the school, but just putting HEPA filter, air filtration things you can buy for a couple hundred bucks on, um, online in each classroom would make a huge difference. And we're not doing any of that for the most part, according to all of the, the union folks I talked to in the teachers union who track this. Uh, Biden has been stronger, but could be even stronger. He is calling for all nonprofits and all employers now that the Pfizer vaccine has been approved to mandate uh, vaccination. And so we need that kind of activity, not only to make workplaces safe, but to raise our vaccine level. Our vaccination level probably needs to get to 85%. Uh, that's because of how much more dangerous the variants are. Well, folks, I'll just say put a bow on this that describes how surreal it is. The FDA does get the Twitter post of the year, I think, for the, hey, y'all, folks, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, cut it out. It's just like, it almost, you would have thought it was on the onion, but that was the FDA. <laughs> know what so I folks, think, actually, Matt? I yes. think that there should be disclaimers on right-wing ideology and voting for them. They're like the pharmaceutical disclaimers. They read really quick on TV. 
may cause a sudden painful death and exposure to a terrible disease. Do not take it if, da-da-da-da. That is voting for Ron Johnson. It should have that disclaimer. And every Republican, unfortunately, now because they've taken over the party. Folks, before we go to break and before we go to our guest, we're going to be joined later in the show by United States Senate Democratic candidate Jill Batino. Needed to talk about a big union victory this week. At Collectivo, this has gotten a lot of media play for very, very good reason. The employer fought very publicly, very publicly with these workers, including after the election comes out with a whole large public statement that I'll just say it made them look extraordinarily arrogant. And geez, wow, what the, the irony of this name. Robert, Claire, <laughs> Collectivo. But solidarity to those workers it's, winning. <laughs> it's IDW's the union. There now will be a union coffee shop. Remember, all the big union employers, a lot of them fought them, GM, Ford. But once they become a union employer, then they are better than all the non-union employers. And it's a great victory for workers. It was a very close election. It came down to having a National Labor Relations Board that was willing to look at the legitimacy of all the votes, and they ran it during a pandemic. It was a very hard election, and it and these elections are rigged. They're, it's like they won an election when there's voter suppression. If you think there's voter suppression going on in the states, you should see what happens in terms of union rules for elections, all tilted to management. So this is a great victory, but we need more of them too. And at least we have in, uh, in, in at least Milwaukee, and it's in Madison as well, and in Chicago, uh, at least one union coffee shop because the workers got one, not because management agreed to it or didn't fight it tooth and nail. So listeners, Claire Zauki, it's her birthday. I think you need to get her a Collectivo coffee. Claire, would that sound good? Can uh, can listeners send you Collectivo coffee cards over the next week to celebrate your birthday? How does that sound? Sounds great. I like my coffee IBEW strong. <laughs> there you go, folks. <laughs> Say happy birthday to Claire Zauke. Go out, send her some, send her some uh, Collectivo gift cards. With that, folks, we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be really fortunate to be joined by Jill Batino. She is from Wausau, and she is running for the United States Senate. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Folks, we're really excited about our next guest. We have been doing a series of interviews with Democratic candidates for the United States Senate seat that is up next year. And we are fortunate to have another guest. We have Jill Batino. And Jill, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having us on. So Jill, I'll just say it, you're a little less known by a number probably of our listeners. So tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and why you decided to jump into this really, really important Senate race. Okay, so I'm from Wausau, Wisconsin um, and uh, in the center of the state here. And I've lived in Wisconsin for 16 years. Um, my husband and I are both physicians. I'm a breast radiologist and he is a urologist. Uh, we have six children, and they range in age from 15 to 25, three girls and three boys. And my, uh, my youngest is a sophomore in high school, and my oldest is a fourth-year medical student. Um, 
So the reason I decided to get into the race is because a lot of, of my time over the last 10 years has been spent taking care of women in Wisconsin. And I have definitely appreciated an improvement in our healthcare provisions and accessibility of healthcare for many of our patients. However, I continue to um, struggle with the lack of healthcare and the obstacles to healthcare for many of our patients. And that includes being uninsured um, or underinsured with high premiums and um, unaffordable deductibles. So I definitely still encounter patients on a regular basis who have delayed their care, um, sometimes progressing to you know, later stage breast cancer because of obstacles to healthcare. Um, so that has been a really um, a big compelling reason for me uh, to jump in this race. And then, you know, also I have, uh, you know, a, a crew of kids that I'm trying to leave a better planet to. And it's become increasingly clear that the issues that we have um, really been struggling with and fighting uh, against and for um, as Democrats and the Democratic principles, I think that drive a lot of the, the Democratic Party uh, have not been addressed. And so, you know, some of those things are things like voting rights, um, and certainly, um, you know, climate change solutions and healthcare accessibility and immigration are, are kind of, I think the, the ones that are front and center, certainly education and racial justice are absolutely on those lists and they haven't been dealt with. Um, and I think I'm, I'm posed to, to deal with those things. I've, I've had a, um, about half of my time over the last 10 years has been uh, spent in a regular job. And then I've intentionally by design set up my career so that the other half is, um, is spent working with the World Health Organization and um, the uh, Pan American Health Organization to design global healthcare solutions. And that's meant all kinds of infrastructure work, policy building, community assessments, team building, um, and high impact sustainable change. And I think that experience really poises me to bring science and medicine to the U.S. Senate as the first woman physician ever in our U.S. Senate. Claire? Thank you. Um, as the sort of uh, in-house healthcare uh, policy person at Citizen Action, I am, of course, very excited to have a healthcare professional in this race, and uh, particularly so that we can elevate the importance of healthcare um, as during this moment. And I, I anticipate that healthcare reforms will be a top issue in this midterm election and the next presidential election, um, because you know, it has been for a while, but also we're still in a pandemic, of course, right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, what you, what will you consider to be the core parts of your sort of healthcare platform and, um, you know, how you think your experience as a physician makes you, um, you know, either maybe I would assume sort of specially qualified to, to talk and legislate on those issues. Yeah, so my um, my stance is one that we hear a lot about, but I don't think is really um, comprehensively understood, and that is a single payer Medicare for all system. Um, and the reason I support that is is because, well, first of all, I'll explain what I mean by that. So Medicare for all means to me preventative health care, surgical and emergency care, end of life 
you know, long-term care and hospice care. Also hearing, vision, and dental care, addiction care. Um, so I think, and psychiatric care needs to be more robust than it is right now. Um, so, you know, comprehensive care, which would also include reducing um, the cost of pharmaceuticals for, um, for folks by allowing governments to negotiate um, prices with pharmaceutical companies. So that's, that's what I mean by that. And the reason I say single payer is because, you know, in my global health work, I have the opportunity to work within countries that have both a public and a private system. And even in the US, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in the VA system and in hospitals that have a VA, you know, immediately next door. Um, and, you know, what I've noticed is that the, the private system kind of undermines the integrity of the public system. Um, so it lobbies against the strength of the public system and, um, and they just really don't work well together. So you end up with an incomplete public service um, that is not as robust and, um, and cannot really address the, the needs of the of, um, people who require that service. So in, in wiping that option away and investing completely and comprehensively in a public health um, program, we can build a robust service that covers everyone. And also as a physician, I've definitely been paying close attention to the fact that we spend more of our GDP on healthcare than anybody else does, and that our health, come, our health outcomes are poorer and are progressively getting worse over the course of time um, as our healthcare costs go up. So obviously we're not doing it right. Um, and other countries haven't done it perfectly, and there are some lessons to be learned, but I think that that's what we need to do. And we've known that for quite some time. We can do that. We can save a lot of money for our country um, and take care of everyone. So thank you for that explanation. That was far and away the clearest explanation of healthcare and healthcare policy we've gotten in a long time from any candidate in any race. So you're really showing your expertise. I want to ask you, I mean, single payer, right, is it's the payment system. It's the private insurance system, which is not all of the healthcare system, right? And you know, the largest amount of money in the system is not the insurance companies cut, it's the health systems, which for our audience is the big hospital chains you see all over the country and all over the state that are usually the largest employer in a region. And then there's pharmaceuticals, right, which are which have a tremendous amount of power and they have power beyond the ability to negotiate with them. That's obviously good, but it's not a panacea because we're giving them unlimited monopolies for medications that are life-saving and that the public in many ways paid for once you look at all of it, right? And so I guess my question is, how does single payer get at all of that necessarily? In fact, I could see a single payer system that doesn't, that kind of bends to the incredible power of healthcare. I mean, the, in, in a state, the hospital systems have far more political power than the insurance companies, for example. And even though they're nonprofits, they function very much like for-profit organizations, in my view. So I want to get your view of how this is going to work. I think what you said and, and what policies need to accompany it, because I think that what you said about how the private system works against the public system and has more power, that's very insightful, and I agree totally. But I want to see where this plays out in policy, because too many folks who are progressive just say, 
have Medicare for all is done, but that it isn't. You have to create a whole new system that, as you're talking about, is focused on health, not focused on profit. So for me, when I say a single payer, I mean that the government is the insurance company. So the, uh, the government is the single payer system. And that means that all other forms of health insurance, essentially, um, other than perhaps elective procedural care, would be gone. Um, and the government would create a hospital-based budget that is based on the previous um, years needs to serve that community. And that's gonna vary from region to region, depending on the demographics and um, you know, the diseases that are more prevalent in that community. Um, so the, the benefit is that the, the government would also be the negotiator with the pharmaceutical companies. And that means that all of the money that the taxpayers are investing into scientific research for the development of pharmaceuticals um, that are then um, sold privately. So we put our money into our taxation system. The um, system invests that money into, let's say the National Institute of Health or other grants with private pharmaceutical companies. They develop a drug and then they, they own the drug or it's sold to them, the rights to that are sold to them. And then that's charged back to the American people who are essentially paying for it again um, and then as a, a ridiculous over cost, um, all of that would be removed and we would have a more ethical mechanism of creating competitive pricing and competitive research for the American people that, um, what, that are paying for just once for the, for the research and then again at its, at its use at a reasonable cost. Does that answer your question? We'd need books to answer it with the question I asked fully, obviously, but so, that, that added more detail to your thoughts on how to do this than some very, very good detail. So with that, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are in the middle of an outstanding interview with Jill Bettino. She's a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Robert, I know you had a quick follow-up. Yeah, we're, we've been talking about what single payer would really mean in terms of the system and digging into it at, at a very high level of policy. So what Jill brings to the table as a candidate is a deep understanding of the, our healthcare system and, it, and its flaws. Um, you brought up how much more we pay per capita, right, than any other country, which is always striking when you see the charts. Um, a lot of experts and, and advocates I know and people who do research say it really does come down to the unit price. In other words, our unit price is exceedingly high, higher than anywhere in the world. And it's because the system is designed to create, to generate profit or margin. A hospital that's nonprofit is collecting marge, operating margin and putting it into reserves or expanding whatever they are doing with it, even if they're not paying dividends. And there are a lot of experts that say, quite frankly, the closest thing we have now to assessing the fair price for a service, I mean, there are some flaws in it, is, is Medicare, which actually does set a price for all the basic services it pays for, and it's adjusted uh, based on regional factors. There are a number of other adjustments. Uh, but hospitals, when you try to do reform or piecemeal reform, like public options, and this has happened in places like Colorado and New Mexico or California, not only do they say they can't survive on the Medicare rate, 
they say they can't survive on 200% of the Medicare rate or 300% of the Medicare rate. And I know there are some experts, there was a paper in Health Affairs a couple of years ago that argued there'd be a huge transition because of the way they're structured, the way a Marshfield Clinic or a Mayo or a Gunderson Lutheran or an Aurora, uh, an advocate Aurora are structured, but that what you could do is set it higher, find the, and then ratchet it down gradually so they could readjust their business model. But I want to get your sense of the role of the unit price and how you use a single payer system in order to get to what amounts to a fair price for services, because that's why it's so expensive. And in fact, it's a huge tax on every employee they understand because it's a huge percentage of their wages. When you get tax-free health care from your employer, this is money not available for your wages. So when, when they, your employer pays 26000 for a family plan, that's money they could have given you to compensation. So I think that, you know, one of the reasons that healthcare is so expensive right now is because the need for, well, basically the economic model is based on the existing system. Um, and, you know, to transition to something entirely new is, is going to be, uh, definitely, it's going to be painful. And we will need to work very closely with hospital systems and their needs are going to be different, whether they serve a rural population or a, you know, a metropolitan population, or they've served a predominantly private payer um, group of patients. Uh, so we'll have to collaborate and discuss with them very carefully to make sure that they do survive a transition. Um, part of reducing cost is to reduce redundancy. So you know, right now in, in Wausau, for example, there are way more C CT scanners and MRI scanners than we necessarily need. They're not running all the time. If I walk into the room um, you know, at five o'clock at night, none of the CT scanners are necessarily being used or an MRI scanner may not be used. Uh, so we, we have a lot of redundancy in our system and that's built, I think, for the specific purpose of cherry picking um, you know, procedures that are higher uh, reimbursement in order to subsidize other services. So, you know, there are highly um, reimbursed services and less highly reimbursed services. And what we really need to do is look at what the services are and how they should be fairly reimbursed under a different type of system that values the service um, and isn't based on this economic model of insurance companies. Uh, so that's going to be a transition that we know we need to make. Um, none of it's all very complicated. And my, my solution has always been that when things are complicated, you know, if somebody has questions about breast cancer or breast imaging, then I'm the expert and I'm happy to answer those. If I have questions about vaccinations, I'm not going to ask Rand Paul, for example, I'm going to ask a, you know, an infectious disease specialist like Dr. Fauci. And in this situation, the way my campaign deals with it is that we collaborate with the experts. Um, so we have a meeting actually coming up with the leadership of Marshfield Clinic because that's uh, where I work, not because there's any sort of special treatment there. They're certainly willing to work with any candidate who has the interest of understanding what the details and what sort of thought and um, preparation is going to need to go into um, transitioning to a universal healthcare system that covers everyone. So yes, it's complicated and we know what some of the big problems are, but it's going to take some very intentional thought and planning. Claire? Thanks. Um, I, I know we only have five or six minutes left. So I want to ask you about 
the last component, we've already talked about sort of Medicare for all, single payer and prescription drug reform. So I want to ask you about the last sort of part of Citizen Action's federal health care platform, and then we can maybe talk about something non-healthcare related, mm-hmm. um, which is caregiving. And because not all caregiving is medical, right? Sometimes caregiving is just about being able to make it through the day-to-day activities of our lives. And um, a big part of what the debate that's happening at the federal level right now is, you know, should we be investing in caregiving, both family caregivers, like, um, you know, parents and siblings who care for children, parents, um, relatives with disabilities, but also professional paid caregivers. So I want to know if you've thought at all about, um, you know, caregiving as an issue and investing in our country's care infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a really, as you alluded to, a really important and perhaps unrecognized uh, piece of our healthcare system is in-home care um, and other types of care uh, that are provided outside of the, you know, the inpatient um, scenario and maybe outside of a facility. Um, And this is very near and dear to me. Um, I have over the last six years um, nursed two parents as they've had their their final days, um, been on home hospice care, one of them during the pandemic um, where we did not have adequate support and, and couldn't get the help we needed because there were so many people who needed help. Um, and also my, my very favorite brother, it's actually my only brother, but he's my favorite also, um, is a, a, a preemie who is now 41 and has special needs and I'm his guardian. So, you know, this is a, something that's very close to my own experiences in life. And, uh, you know, generally what I will say is that we need to better support families so that they can do this when they want to do this or when it's possible for them. For so many people, it is absolutely devastating um, financially. Uh, and just, you know, in, in my own circumstance last December when my mother-in-law was um, on hospice care and at home, it was expected that family took care of her and it was really impossible. Um, you know, her husband is 90 years old and I was there, but I'm not a 24 seven can't, you can't do it all the time. You might think you can, but you can't. Um, and I think for about three weeks of care, we ended up paying out of pocket for uh, about $15,000, which is completely unaffordable for the majority of people. And she had long-term care insurance, but it didn't kick in until, um, you know, I think it was three to six months or something like that. So these types of things are are vastly underappreciated and can be financially just devastating for families. Um, and when people are at home, they want to die with dignity and they want to die um, under you know the best of circumstances and with optimal care. And that is the humane, dignified thing for us all to do. And it's not something that anybody gets to skip out on. We might think that it's not going to happen to us, but of course that's not the case. Um, so I do believe that this needs to be centered within our healthcare policy. So, Jill, I appreciate this was a extraordinarily in-depth, I think Robert mentioned it, probably the best conversation we've ever had on healthcare with a candidate. Before you go, though, I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything else that you really feels important that you want to get out about your campaign. Um, you have the floor. Okay, thank you. So, um, you know, 
for me right now, there are a couple of things that are most urgent. Of course, health care is, is front and center there and voting rights are kind of and filibuster are sort of above all of that because I think if we don't address our voting rights um, issues and uh, attempts to suppress voting rights and gerrymandering and you know all of the um, efforts from the GOP to make it more difficult to vote, then we're no longer a democracy. So obviously that absolutely has to be prioritized and centered. Um, we need to address our filibuster uh, reform or abolishment um, to move forward at these at these times when the critical issues are really emergent, I think, and climate change solution, healthcare, things like this, absolutely. And certainly racial justice, uh, which has been a target of the filibuster forever. Uh, so we need to deal with those things. Um, but, you know, after that, one of the tremendous burdens that I think we are facing and that we've done to ourselves, uh, unfortunately, is, is climate change and protecting our environment. Um, and the way I see it, first of all, science is real and we need scientists. Um, I was a biologist before I went to medical school, um, meaning I have a biology degree and love ichthyology and um, environment and, and spent lots of time uh, slogging around in swamps to understand our planet. Um, and, and we need people who understand our planet really fighting this battle, um, not just talking about the legislature, but actually kicking and screaming and pushing it through to have urgent sustainable change. And while we're doing that, it's the perfect time to use things like the Green New Deal, which I think beautifully centers um, all sorts of inequity, racial inequity, wealth inequity, um, and, um, and many other types of inequity, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, to rebuild our infrastructure with those sorts of um, challenges in mind. Uh, so I would like to see this explosion of work that is, is impending on our um, infrastructure with a bipartisan infrastructure bill and the reconciliation that is coming along after it. I would like to see that also center the growth of our unions so that people can have a fair wage and can have a retirement with dignity um, and safety on their jobs and that we can really use the, um, the model that unions have had for uh, forever uh, about you know, getting a fair shake and really taking care of folks. Um, so those, that's really important to me and I'm, I'm really pushing for that. And I could go on and on about that another time. <laughs> well, look, we really appreciate the time, the thoughtfulness of this conversation that you're running for office uh, and bringing your particular expertise uh, to this campaign. Thank you so much, Jill. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And with that, folks, we have got to wrap up this uh, episode of the Battleground Wisconsin. We want to thank our producer, Brian Woldridge, who makes this show happen every week. And of course, we really thank Jill Bettino for joining us. Folks, we'll see y'all next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin. <laughs>